Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Our core psychobiological drive as human beings is to establish secure connection from birth until death. Especially in childhood, we establish secure connection for soothing, protection, emotional regulation, and optimal development, uh, all of which is entirely reliant upon how securely connected with a parent or both parents. When we get secure attachment, which means somebody who's reliably available and attentive and interested in how what we're experiencing and feeling and someone who's soothing in their very presence, they're not too anxious or emotionally dead. They're actually mirroring in a soothing way. They can indicate that they understand how we feel, but they can also, by their looks, their body language, their quality of their voice or touch, they can soothe us. And also they're appreciative. They appreciate our developmental growth and milestones. And we know that when we get that, we develop what some therapists call object constancy or others call secure base. They mean both the same thing, essentially that felt sense that even when we are alone as infants, there's a sense that there is somebody available who will take care of us and help us recover from scary events or from difficulties with peers and so forth. And when we have that sense of there's somebody there to help nurture and help us make sense of our experience, then it builds the ability to explore, to develop, uh, to take risks and to, uh, to engage with a sense of confidence with others. So children who are scored as secure in the strange test, which is the way they determine the attachment styles of infants, do much, much better uh, in integrating and developing bonds with uh, others than children who, infants who are scored as insecure. And if you're interested in this, you can check out the work of anyone from Bowlby to Ainsworth to Mary Main to the great um, David Wallen, uh, Mario McEwenser, Dan Siegel. These are the greatest uh, developmental psychologists of our age. Alan Shore, the great neuropsychologist who shows that our attachment structures are lastingly imprinted on the right orbital frontal and Matthew Lieberman, all the way down the line. Uh, when we don't have a secure base, uh, we are in, unable to be flexible in our relationships. We struggle to make and establish bonds with others. Uh, and then there's, because we fail to uh, learn how to regulate emotions by connecting with others and also learning that our internal experience is not that unique from having a healthy relationship. If you have an unhealthy one, then you will struggle to integrate your emotions into what's called your self-structure. In other words, when you feel angry, 
if nobody around you in your childhood allowed you to experience anger and soothed you and made that seem okay and normal, <laughs> then when you feel anger throughout the rest of your developmental growth, you'll have to repress it, suppress it, and then repress it because it will feel a scary, foreign, uncontrollable energy that's threatening to you. Uh, very often, people who score as um, uh, not secure in, the, in early attachments rely on denial as a way to handle ex stressful experiences. Um, and they also score high on reliance on what's called dead objects. That's another word for addiction. Uh, dead object is instead of turning to a human being who's available, caring, empathetic to process your emotions, instead you will rely on substances or process behaviors like shopping or uh, TV, con excessive TV consumption or excessive social media binging and whatever. So um, if you have a secure base, it is essentially establishes a healthy sense of what love is for the rest of your life. A secure base and love and secure friendships, what the Buddha called Mita, that he said was the absolute foundation of the spiritual path, are one, they alleviate separation anxiety. So if you experience true love with someone or true friendship, you know that even when they're not there or when that you're going through something that's difficult, they will be available to you, that you can reach out to them, that they will respond, that they will respond with a soothing, positive uh, regard that is, uh, you know, engaging and uh, appreciative. So when you have a secure relationship, then you also will feel confident to develop interests outside of the relationship. In other words, you will be able to have peers, community, you will be able to um, uh, take on interests that your partner doesn't have any interest in because you're secure in the understanding that even if you're into Reiki and they're not, or you're into surfing or whatever, and they're not, you can, you'll still feel the permission to explore and to engage in these, uh, these developmental uh, pursuits outside of the relationship without feeling that these interests in any way threaten the stability of your partnership and so forth. Um, so in early childhood, one of the of course, the most common ways that secure attachment is threatened is by abandonment, rejection, shaming, and abuse. Those are one whole category of the way children can wind up with insecure attachment styles, anxious, avoidant, or disorganized. But there's another way that can uh, f fuck you up just as thoroughly. That's the clinical term. Um, <laughs> That's called enmeshment. Enmeshment is a term that uh, 
is while some people use it in a kind of global way that I don't like, I tend to believe that we should use terms at least in some with some sense of what they denote so that they don't lose all their meaning. And enmeshment is a situation where family members' boundaries are blurred. It generally refers to a situation where a parent doesn't establish uh, and maintain a caregiving, uh, guiding role with a child. Uh, what are some of the characteristics of an enmeshment, uh, an enmeshing dyad in childhood? Well, one, when the parent's sense of success or failure in any way is attached to the child's performance. So the parent reacts to the child's uh, mistakes uh, or accomplishments as if it's somehow a statement about the parent's core self and their worth. And so the parent will be overreactive, will not have a stable uh, uh, expression or uh, presentation to the child. The parent's presentation will change abruptly depending upon whether the child performs well or uh, doesn't uh, make certain achievements. Another form of enmeshment is when a parent tries to manipulate or direct the child's feelings. Feelings are supposed to be innate. They're expressions of one's core self and any attempt to manipulate your feelings or the feelings of a child to dictate the way any child should feel is a form of coercion and enmeshment and it will hinder the child's development of a stable self-structure because the child will look outside of itself for directions on how to feel and then will continue to do that with partners. Um, the parent may rely on the child for emotional support, might share uh, intimacies from adult relationships, might express in over detail the angers or fears about uh, their own security and might also not have a good sense of privacy, might try to constantly invade the child's sense of autonomy and hinder the child's growth. And a meshed child will very often grow up to have, of course, avoidant attachment because their experience in relationships is so overbearing, so engulfing that in adult life, the child will essentially be guarded in relationships and will fear commitment and will have very strong distance-seeking impulses in relationships the moment any expression of love or um, uh, you know bonds are expressed by their partner. Uh, children who are enmeshed will struggle to grow up to auto-regulate their own emotions because they've been so enmeshed with a parent that they didn't even know when their self ended and the parent's self begins. And so they have a very difficult time developing what's called resilience, an ability to withstand uh, distress. They tend to look constantly for others to, for reassurance rather than having any ability of their own to have a sense of confidence that they can withstand 
uh, setbacks. They really, really struggle uh, often to assert agency because they're used to having a, uh, a figure, an ever-present figure of concern. Now, in adult life, um, one of the biggest concerns, there's two large concerns that are associated with a overdependence in relationships. The first is known as codependency, and I'm sure that term is not unfamiliar to you, and yet despite its uh, proliferation thanks to like, programs like CODA and books by Melody Beattie and so forth, very often people have only a very vague and fuzzy sense about what codependency is. Um, certainly, uh, there's a great deal of concern about being codependent because we live in a culture that validates self-reliance. That's endemic of all capitalist, late capitalist, you know, uh, cultures that they really validate. You have to do everything and you have to be self-reliant because nobody's going to help you out, you know. So this sense that of being self-reliance is very uh, venerated. And so we are all uh, essentially through hegemic brainwashing. Uh, we do have uh, fears of being overly dependent, but very often there's not an understanding of what it actually entails. So the codependent is generally someone who, not always, but someone who grew up with an emotionally avoidant, I emotionally non-demonstrative, somebody who was shut down, somebody who was, or somebody who was narcissistic, or somebody who was perhaps a parent who was an addict, or emotionally dysregulated. In other words, they were a very difficult person to bond with on an empathetic level, but they needed some form of attention constantly from the child. Uh, and so the child's own needs weren't adequately met. Over time, rather than risk the rejection and criticism of this uh, challenging caregiver, the child learns to ignore their own needs, their own feelings, and learns to focus their attention on what will be pleasing or what will at least maintain the uh, safe demeanor of their caregiver. This results over time in very low self-esteem, of course, and uh, someone who is all too ready to put aside their own needs, their own desires, their own uh, possibilities of growth, they will almost invariably not have enough peer support in their life because they will uh, constantly, they've been trained to focus their attention excessively on their primary relationship. Um, their thoughts, their feelings, and their actions revolve entirely around the person they're in the relationship. And it leads, of course, to a diminished sense of confidence that they can are permitted and can do anything on their own. They're very often, over time, neglecting of their needs, their own health, even. Narcissists are a magnet, in my experience, for uh, people with codependent tendencies. 
or people as well as people with anxious tendencies. There's a lot of similarities in the characteristics. Um, uh, generally, anyone who demands a lot of care and attention but can't give it back is a natural inducement or enticement or magnet for people who have codependent tendencies. People with codependent tendencies will very often feel resentment and anger to their partner, but they will stay in the relationship at all costs. Um, whenever they, uh, somebody with codependent tendencies wants to pursue very normal goals like connect with a friend for dinner or go to a 12-step meeting or take a class, things that are just so mundane and rote and necessary for one's own self-esteem. If somebody has codependent tendencies, they will worry first, what will my partner think? How can I avoid uh, the criticism, the reaction, the judgment about this new uh, step in my life? It will lead very often to paralysis. Very often a codependent will promise friends that they'll get together, but each time they will not show up or social engagements because they're concerned about how to manage the reaction of the person they're in the relationship. Somebody, uh, some therapists break down codependence into two types. Active are ones who are very manipulative, uh, aggressive, uh, very often, for example, someone who's been a caregiver of, of an alcoholic, drug addict, or a person who's become an invalid, and then finally all the built-up aggression, anger, is vented on the partner. But most are passive in that they operate as a victim or a martyr, and they in many ways believe that, they've, that they are somehow... Uh, they didn't make any choice, that they just wound up and they don't, uh, they are consistently giving, um, caretaking, but they don't express any of the resentment. It's all kept internally. They essentially learn to present a false self. So our culture is a breeding ground in many ways for uh, codependency and that with on the one hand, there is this strong emphasis upon uh, not asking for help, not having community bonds. There's this other emphasis upon pairing up, that once you meet Mrs. or Mr. Wright or you know, whoever it is for you, that you should be happily ever after, that you shouldn't need to have the, you know, a wide group of support. Um, and so it sets up people to seek the solutions for their interpersonal needs from one person. And that in and of itself can exacerbate co codependent tendencies. If you look at the history of our species, up until very, very recently, maybe the last 50 or 60 years, um, the, by and large, social structures transglobally, transculturally, uh, transhistorically, always had the same characteristics that people would have packs of friends. From the hunter-gatherers up into the early form, formation of feudal states and so forth, people would always have about 
five or six people that they would be close to that would know exactly what's going on with them in their lives and would be able to support and create a sense of a secure base. And the Buddha says over and over again that these what he called kalyanamita or caring people who are who know what's going on and can help soothe us and support us are the absolute vitals of any kind of spiritual growth. Um, so uh, it is, from any uh, cultural perspective, an important topic. Now, while lastly, before we go into tools for addressing codependency, uh, it should be noted that uh, when people have an over-reliance or over-dependency on one person in a relationship, it's not always codependency. There's also what's known as fused partners. Some people call it irrelationships. There's other terms for it. So the difference is, is that classically the codependent is someone who has generally some generally anxious attachment and hooks up with someone with avoidant attachment or disorganized attachment, someone whose ability to express uh, kindness, compassion, appreciation, who gives permission for growth, who can create a secure base is not there. But fused couples are a special case. <laughs> They're generally what happens when two anxious people get together. And so they both form this, what I like to call bisolating as opposed to isolating, a bisolating core where both are scared of separation. So both have strong separation anxiety, both struggle to function outside of the relationship. Neither is the predominant caregiver and the, the predominant narcissist. Both have ongoing anxious demeanors and insecure attachment. Um, they essentially achieve anxiety reduction through staying constantly in the partnership without growing, without connecting with, a, with other people, without any exploration of, of uh, interests outside of their partnership. Um, there's an over-involvement uh, in each other's lives. And they become obsessed with each other's behaviors, each other's, uh, you know, minute, mundane actions, because any sense of the other having anything outside of the relationship activates separation anxiety. And of course, since both people have anxious attachment, that is their greatest fear, being separated, being abandoned, being disconnected from. All forms of codependency and fusion in couples are sustained by a couple of things. One, a lack of a secure base, a fear of autonomy due to often social anxiety, a, an over-reliance on one person for support, generally some person who's not capable of giving it. And finally, an overactive, hijacked sense of guilt. What do I mean by that? Um, all human beings, due to the fact that we're a social species that thrived on our ability to form small but reliant social bonds, uh, developed 
a social a circuit that creates emotional pain and we even know exactly where it is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and if we do anti-tribal actions actions that are selfish actions where we constantly put ourselves first where we don't uh, express care unless we are a sociopath we will feel some sense of remorse and that's a healthy thing because we want to have a pro-tribal circuit that rewards us with endorphins and uh, dopamine and oxytocin when we do things that help others. That's why people don't experience purpose in their life unless they at least in some part of their daily, uh, their weekly routines do something of benefit for others. But at the same time, this social circuit can be hijacked early on by family systems that create this constant messaging that if you explore your own needs, that if you take into consideration your own desires and your own growth, then you are being <clears throat> antisocial. And so literally the exact same circuit now punishes the individual for completely healthy actions simply wanting to connect with friends, to develop a new hobby, to travel maybe a little on their own, to uh, take classes, any normative, extremely healthy, uh, uh, putting oneself and one's needs first are now hijacked by this guilt structure in the brain and people will start to feel a plummeting of endorphins and a plummeting of serotonin and oxytocin so they'll start to feel a mood uh, essentially mood plummets at the very thought of pursuing their own goals if not anxiety so what are the key tools well one, most clinicians and uh, people in recovery from codependency do agree that if it's at all possible, it's necessary to take time away from a codependent relationship. You can't work through a codependent relationship or codependency tendency when you're actually in a relationship that has the features because even the, the most basic steps that are required to develop autonomy, confidence, a strong sense of self, understanding what our needs are as opposed to the needs of the person we're in the relationship with, that requires distance and that requires essentially time apart. Now I'm saying this completely acknowledging that some relationships that is not possible. Some people, uh, for instance, take on the caregiving of a parent or somebody in their family who is emotionally dysregulated due to anything from dementia to addiction to whatever, and they cannot get distance. And so, again, maybe these optimal tools are just not available. Being in a support group and also if possible a therapy environment where the person who's codependent can learn to get back in touch with their own needs their own desires and their own feelings and separate those from the desires and feelings of the person that they're in this 
essentially toxic relationship is absolutely vital. If you cannot discern what your feelings actually are as opposed to feelings you've manufactured to make someone, you know, be okay with you, if you have to always worry about what someone else will think or how they will react to your own goals, your own desires, then you will have no way of ever knowing what is your authentic needs and therefore having any form of a stable, secure self and an ability to confidently explore and have a life that's authentic will not be possible. So spending time away from people that encourage us to put aside our concerns and our over fixation on another and to bring our awareness internally and connect with our feelings from a perspective of just what is our pure gut sensations about certain needs. Generally, those are better than trusting our thoughts in terms of finding out our true needs. Um, another key is distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is the ability to do something difficult that we know is going to be uh, stressful and to be able to tolerate the stress so that we can pursue a worthy goal in our life. Distress tolerance is all but completely eliminated from people who have strong codependent or fused tendencies because they essentially have never pushed themselves to express or pursue worthy goals outside of the relationship. They've used avoidance coping to stay and to please or to sustain the relationship. And therefore, the very act of stating needs or setting boundaries becomes over time terrifying. The only way to develop these absolutely necessary adaptive developmental milestones, really, of being able to set boundaries and to essentially uh, persevere and not accept no for an answer when it's something that's healthy for our own well-being and our own growth requires that we be able to withstand stress because it will be stressful stating what we want withstanding the reactions pushing forward with despite the all the different forms of reactions we might be greeted with by family members, by a partner, by a boss, if it's a codependent relationship at work and so forth, will be very difficult. And most people keep themselves uh, mired in these because they have this uh, unconscious fear that the experience of simply setting a boundary will be too painful, too scary, that will entail too much conflict. So in our meditation, we are going to be doing two practices along with self-soothing. We're going to, one, get in touch, just a little practice of getting in touch with what a core authentic need is as opposed to what other people want for us. And then two, we're also going to practice distress tolerance. So I hope this talk was of interest in some way. And now find a really comfortable seated position.
And just closing the eyes and just uh, taking a moment to reel your awareness back in to your internal experience. You can imagine like someone fishing and they have a, a line cast into the ocean with a bait and then they reel back in the line and the bait back to the uh, fishing rod. And it's a little bit like that. We're pulling our awareness away from the world around us for a moment, away from concerns outside of ourself. We're bringing our awareness, the attention, the focus to sensations that are going on first internally, sensations like just the feelings of the body, the breath, any tightness, Just become aware of your inner world. Above can be the thoughts that, like clouds, float through ongoing clouds passing through. By bringing our attention to below, the sky being like awareness itself, The ground being sensations, contact with the floor or chair. Feelings. What mood is present? Is the mind bright and alert? Is there a sense of darkness? tiredness or sadness or heaviness? Is there a jumpy energy, anxious or scattered? What is the uh, weather like in the mind? And while we just spend a little time exploring this invisible landscape, we can use some techniques to make the experience more soothing.
you can find any muscles, perhaps the shoulders or the muscles in the back of the neck or sit bones or toes, whatever feels slightly twitching or filled with energy, just take a moment to tense. So for instance, like tense the arms or the shoulders and then relax and release. It's interesting that muscles that we tense and release are actually will consume less blood, less oxygen, I mean, excuse me, than muscles before we tense them. Breathing into the belly. So instead of focusing on the sensations of the chest, take some breaths, just experiencing the belly expanding with the inhalation and then releasing with the exhalation. Abdominal breathing is much more soothing, sends a signal to the right amygdala that we're safe. Additionally, um, long exhalations. The longer you breathe out, as opposed to breathe in, the more you'll engage the vagal break, lowering your heart rate, your blood pressure. Disengages the mobilized state of the nervous system and puts you back in rest and digest. So breathing into the belly, long exhalations, keeping the arms not too tight to the body.
See if we can land in our life, which means remembering what it feels like when you are on the first day of a vacation. Maybe you've arrived someplace, a destination that's really beautiful. You've got nothing to do, nothing to take care of nothing to achieve. There's nowhere else you want to be. All you want to do is experience and drink in this moment. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. No one to take care of. And if it's difficult, just let go of trying to do anything and just sit, just relax. Just ask yourself, how can I make this experience as relaxing for me as I can right now?
So I'd like you to bring to mind some choice. You may have been going back and forth over, wrangling over, or perhaps something that you've liked, you've wanted to do but have been putting off. A place to travel, a new skill to develop, a new experience, something that is maybe tinged with both excitement and a bit of fear. Or you can just bring something spontaneously up into your mind, traveling somewhere, pursuing a new career. It doesn't matter. Just bring something to mind and just see how you feel when you think about this possibility. What does your stomach feel like? Does it feel tight or released? How about your chest? Does your breath Stay relaxed, or does it feel slightly cut off? What is the mood of the mind when you think about this opportunity or possibility or just inkling you might have? And now what I'd like you to do is imagine you could put on or you could actually climb inside of, let's say, a protective bubble. And in this protective bubble, nothing that other people think could affect you, no criticism, or judgment would ever be able to reach you. It protects you from any negative reaction from anyone else. You're now completely immune and then bring your attention again to this possibility and see if there's any shift in the way you feel.
Once again, now no one's opinions, views, Now the only thing that registers is what this feels like for you. So let's put that practice aside and go to the second practice. I'd like you to visualize a conversation that you would have with someone that might be disappointing to them, but also would be very much about taking care of yourself, time for yourself. A conversation you'd have maybe with a colleague, a partner, a friend, a supervisor, family member, someone who claims a lot of space at times in your mind, if such a person exists. And just imagine being with them and telling them that you're going to do something entirely for your own growth. And just see if you can bring while you visualize this person and their possible response, I'd like you to bring your awareness into your body. Find any stress or tension that builds, again, in the stomach or the chest or the throat. Or perhaps a bunch of worried thoughts might arise, or perhaps just a sense of tingling in the body. See if you can find the felt sensations associated with having a difficult con but necessary conversation. See if you can find that experience
And then wherever you find any tension or stress or anxiety in terms of energy and agitation in the body or the mind, just use the tools again long, soothing exhalations directed at whatever part of the body feels tense. You might visualize someone who is appreciative, encouraging, now present, encouraging you to pursue what is authentic for you. See if you can open up your chest, pull the shoulders back. Be in a body that can completely withstand any pushback. Just imagine yourself calm despite any negative response you might get. So Whenever you feel like it, you can just let that image go. Bring your awareness back to the belly. Nice full breath in, releasing. And when you hear the sound of the bowl, just take your time and slowly at your own pace. Whenever it feels right, open your eyes. If you first, if you like, first look at the floor in front of you so that when you bring sight into your awareness, it doesn't push all the awareness of your body out of your attention. Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening.